what's your favorite color to wear? I'm I'm looking forward to Deeper's response to this because Deeper is a sharply dressed young man. Uh, I struggle with uh, my wardrobe because most of my wardrobe is mostly shades of blue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of repeat things that come along. You got to work with what you got. That's what that's what you have to do fashion wise, right? Just to work with what you got. We're we're now dispersing fashion advice along with integrated <laughs> yes, care. You never right. know what advice. You're get you know, from we're we're very eclectic people. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are so happy you've joined us again. I love getting good feedback. The rest of our podcast team probably doesn't get as much of the feedback. I don't know if you guys get feedback, but I do as I go around, talk to CFHA members. Uh, lots of folks really uh, have been very encouraging about the podcast, and we've had thousands of people listening to us in aggregate over the last year. So um, it's been a real pleasure to see people connect to the podcast and through the podcast to our association. So thank you again to our listeners uh, for listening. So today we have another great podcast. We have our usual news and notes section. We have a really couple of cool items we just talked about as we prep for this podcast. So I'm excited about that. And our main topic for today is going to be uh, sort of assessing the level of integration of your clinic or your organization. How do you do that? What's the ideal state? What are some tools you can use, et cetera? So really practical, helpful conversation for those of you wanting to be self-reflective about where you are in that whole process. So uh, before we get to that, let me make sure that our team has a chance to say hello. So Grace, why don't you say hello to the folks out there? Hello, everyone. Um, you know, I had said that we need like a question of the week instead of just talking about the weather when we all say hello. Um, so I'm going to make up one on the fly for us here. What's your favorite color to wear? That's, I don't know, first thing oh, I thought man. of. I tend to wear a lot of purple. Um, and it's kind of a joke the other day. My mom was wearing a purple sweater and I was like, I think I need that. I don't have that exact color of purple sweater. So um, probably even less interesting than the weather, but something different for us to share about. And maybe as our uh, friends at home are getting a little bit of a mental image of us, that could be something to think about. That's awesome. Yeah. So purple, why purple? You know, I just, when, when I was in high school, one time my friend's mom told me she thought I looked really good in purple. <laughs> that always kind of <laughs> stuck with me in a vanity yeah. way. But then also I just really like it. It goes with a lot of things that's... Uh, not like bright neon purple, but more of a plum. So it works in professional environments. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like it. That's cool. Yeah, purple. Wow. Amber, why don't you say hello and I guess your favorite color. Hello, everyone. My name is Amber Gordon, and um, I am joining from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I actually have like a little bit of a funny story when it comes to clothes that I like to wear or colors that I like to wear. I would always go uh, shopping with my mom and we'd be checking out and they would always think my mom's pile was mine and my pile was my mom's. My mom loves to wear bright colors and prints and like fun stuff. My pile would always be like a million different kinds of black things and (laughs) beige and like brown. Um, My mom's a very artistic person. She'd be like, you need to like wear some more color. So I, I always go shopping with the, you know, thought that I'm going to infuse more bright colors into my wardrobe and then always fail. And then I come home and realize I've just bought more of what I already have, um, (laughs) which is a lot of like black cardigans and like beige 
like shirts and stuff like that. I feel like I'm a pretty exciting person, but my clothing definitely does not reflect that at all. I'm pretty, pretty basic, pretty basic when it comes to the wardrobe choices. <laughs> so I admire your plum, Grace. You go, girl. <laughs> That's Thanks. right. Thanks. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is going to sound really old of me, but uh, that word basic is something the kids use to mean like a whole category of person that is yeah. sort of a what we used to call poser or copycat i guess is the you know just sort of like you wear what everybody wears kind of a thing so ah. i don't know if that's what you meant I, I don't think that's what you meant i but. meant basic like as in like i i have a million staple wardrobe pieces and nothing really like that stands out or anything like that <laughs> that's like i think that's more of like a fashion term like that's basic right. Yeah. Says, but yes, but basic is is a term the uh, quote kids use. Yes. <laughs> oh man, oh. older every day. <laughs> <laughs> Deepu, Happens to all of us. So so I'm I'm looking forward to Deepu's response to this because Deepu is a sharply dressed young man. Uh, <laughs> I like his style. So so what's your what's your color secret? Oh, see, I don't have any secrets as such. Um, I think uh, I struggle with uh, my wardrobe because most of my wardrobe is mostly shades of blue, and my colleagues have commented on that. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys only see me like once a month, so it makes it look like I'm fresh every day. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of repeat things that come along. Uh, my favorite uh, color, though, is purple. I have some purple, uh, purple wear, and uh, today I am wearing a maroon and orange tie uh, representing uh, Virginia Tech, and uh, we're in the Sweet 16. We're about to play Duke on Friday, uh, so hopefully we keep going. Um, and those of you who did tune in for the weather updates in South Texas, it is sunny and it is beautiful. <laughs> and soon to be hot, of course. Yes, to be hot, <laughs> like yes. in 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, my uh, my wardrobe update is, is similar to Amber's. I think I have this image of myself, um, but... You know, you, you have a skin tone, and I've learned that your skin tone matches certain colors. And so uh, I do well in very basic type colors, blacks and uh, browns and, uh, uh, you know, solid colors, essentially. Uh, but inside, I would love to wear, like, you know, rainbows. The one color I will say that I think I, I look good in, and this is the Hispanic side of me, um, which is probably my favorite shirt color to wear is is pink. So I love a certain shade of not like hot pink, obviously, but more of a rose type type pink that looks good in a nice dress shirt on me. So, you know, you got to work with what you got. That's what that's what you have to do fashion wise. Right. Just to work with what you got. That's correct. Amen. Amen. We're we're now dispersing fashion advice along with integrated <laughs> yes, care. You never right. know what advice. You're get you know, from we're we're very eclectic people. Absolutely. I know. I know. Multi-talented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I did get feedback. I was in Philadelphia this weekend uh doing some work with a great friend of mine and great friend of CFHA's Natalie Lefkovich. And she she yeah, she said she she tuned into the podcast and she's like, "The first 15 minutes was just talking about nothing. It was just stuff, talking about stuff and I I just wanted to get to the stuff." <laughs> And I was like, you know, now that's that's kind of the way podcasts are, you know. So, 
to, she to Natalie. giving the more serious people like timestamps. Yes, they that's right. That's oh, right. Yeah, you yeah. just want to skip to the good stuff. Skip to the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this is good too. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just it's probably a generational thing. It's, it's uh, <laughs> folks who listen to podcasts and folks who don't listen to podcasts essentially. <laughs> but uh, Natalie's awesome. All right, uh, this is a good time to, uh, before we get to news and notes, remind you that our podcast is sponsored. We are sponsored by UW Health for careers, and particularly careers in integrated care. Please check out UW Health at careers.uwhealth.org. That's careers.uwhealth.org. They have a huge initiative. They're hiring a bunch of folks uh, for their integrated care initiative, so check them out, careers.uwhealth.org. I also want to give another shout out to our post-production guy. So he's part of our team, but he's not here in person. He's the guy who puts this podcast together at the end, Kevin Radine. Kevin is our uh, production assistant. Um, so thanks, Kevin, for your work on this. This is all volunteer stuff, by the way, folks. So um, uh, a labor of love. So thanks to Kevin and thanks to our team. All right, now it's time for news and notes. And today for news and notes, we've got uh, an interesting article. Was it out of JAMA, uh, Deepu? Yes, it is out of JAMA. It was published online March 22nd, 2019. So it's hot off the press, as they say. Yeah. Uh, the I, I thought it was interesting, especially as uh, we were in clinic yesterday. I saw a patient interaction and um, from a resident to a patient, very complex patient. And the title of the article is Why Physicians Should Trust in Patients. And let me just give you a quick glimpse of what the article could be about. Um, it begins with saying most of the existing literature on trust between patients and physicians focuses on whether patients trust their clinicians. When medical paternalism was a dominant model in healthcare, this focus may have been logical. If the physician knows best, the main role of the patient is to trust and follow the guidance of the physician. But in the new age of patient autonomy, a growing but still limited evidence base demonstrates the efficacy of patient-physician relationships and co-produced care to improve quality and safety of care, outcomes, and experience. And so it really begins to go on to implicit bias and other things that we bring to the table. And do we really trust patients as the ultimate decision makers? Uh, they give a lot of uh, importance to shared decision making. And the other interesting statistic that I, or number that I found in here was in, in the 1980s, um, I think there was like 30 seconds before physicians interrupted patients. In a more recent study, it was 11 seconds before patients were interrupted uh, from their opening statements by physicians. And so, you know, something to think about um, uh, for those of us in integrated care or just caring for patients in general. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like another podcast episode there. Um, uh, so um, I, I, I have a couple of follow-ups real quick, and I don't want to take a lot of time, but um, I'm just curious for Grace and Deepu in your residency settings whether um, this notion of of a sort of more patient-driven uh, conversation actually sort of comes up in the curriculum or, or training experiences, um, you know, to sort of address that issue? 
I would say it's a very central theme to our program, thinking about patient-centeredness and relationships and the doctor-patient relationship. And we're finding this the resonance that are coming to us from med schools are like their med school curriculum has emphasized it as well. Um, and so definitely thinking about the quality of that relationship, the give and take in that relationship. Um, it did make me think that I, I wasn't sure exactly what you were going to ask. And sometimes I think it's, there's an additional layer of difficulty for the residents um, when trusting their patients because they have such a shorter term relationship than we hope that physicians will have with their patients overall in the future. I mean, you want someone to be their personal physician and build this relationship over years. And we know that relationships take time and trust is built. Um, and the other thing is that when they have a violation of their trust, um, it's a, such a smaller pool of experience that they have. So when they encounter someone who they trusted and then that trust was broken, that feels like a much larger percentage of their experience than mm -hmm. when a, they have a bigger patient pool, and B, they have more years of experience to kind of dilute out that effect. So it can feel like more of an injury or more like, you know, taking advantage of their naivete, I think, than even sometimes someone who's been practicing in the field much longer. So it's this constant balance and tension that we talk about very overtly uh, because it's such a, a an important part of their development as physicians, I believe. Yeah, I think in our uh, training setting, I definitely was noticing that I could emphasize it a lot more in our regular discussions over the past few years. I've sort of uh, playing multiple roles, uh, doing a lot of a lot more administrative things. So we've taken a different route to our educational round. So the resident who was in clinic uh, will get this article and based <laughs> on like some of the observations that I had, I think part of it is also beginning to look at trust as um, if you're always demanding capital T truth and that's our benchmarks, like if they lie once and that's it, uh, versus seeing it as a whole bunch of truths with, with a smaller T, uh, recognizing that everybody wants to show a part of themselves and hide some other parts, including the provider, right? Um, and so sort of allowing trust to be a multi-directed view uh, or like a 360 view to saying, yeah, they are serious when they complain about their pain or uh, certain symptoms that we think may be malingering because whether it's a physical experience or a psychological experience, it is still what's guiding their visit. Whether they're uh, sort of maybe trying to get something off of us or not, it is still what they're presenting with, right? And sort of uh, learning to remain curious and be um, be patient in that process. It may not work all the time, um, you know, because we are human and we get frustrated. Um, our biases kick in. But we do place an emphasis on that. Um, and just uh, reflecting on Grace, I think from my end, I can do a lot better job of bringing it back to more encounters than not. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think also, I was actually at Grand Rounds yesterday at UNC where I do some clinical work, and it was on MAT and um, sort of the, the approach to MAT and the prevailing, the, really the prevailing approach with medication-assisted treatment. This is, uh, I shouldn't use acronyms uh, like that, but medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction is, I think, based on a more trusting, um, open relationship 
and it's not necessarily trusting in a naive way as in like, oh, patients are always going to tell you the truth. Um, but it's more so um, let's let's empower patients to uh, by giving them the tools they need to improve their health with all chronic diseases, just like we would with diabetes and like we would with uh, Suboxone. Um, and and not have this sort of paternalistic adversarial relationship where well you your your tox screen came up negative we're going to just kick you out right and that goes to that right. small t truth right that idea that hey our job here is not to dictate to patients our job is to empower patients to help them take steps in their lives and that includes healthy boundary setting in in relationship and and like Absolutely. that but but it doesn't. Uh, it, it, it really is a very just different place from which to arrive at that that relationship. So it's really cool to see this uh, come up in a in a, a journal as big as JAMA. So thanks for giving us that yeah. article. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. Uh, Grace, you have a news note item that was really cool. And actually, I didn't say this when in prep, but I, I thought of an idea like that, like what you're going to talk about, uh, except in like app form, because everything I think of is in, in the form of an, <laughs> of an iPhone app, uh, which never comes to fruition, by the way. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this really cool thing uh, you guys are using? Well, this is a little more low tech than an app, but just as easy, I think. Um, I think, this it's, just I think it's easier. <laughs> easier. Yes, yeah. probably so. So this is just a quick tip recommendation, something we're finding we're using a lot of our program. Um, so you can't see it, but I'm holding these decks of cards, just like you would get, you know, a deck of cards that you would play solitaire with, except these cards are used for clinical intervention. So one of them is about mindfulness. I have one about acceptance and commitment therapy. We have one on self-compassion and they have these on all different kinds of things. I even came across one that's for clinicians uh, about your own, it's called the burnout deck. Um, so anyway, these cards have um, about 50-ish um, different practices or brief interventions or things that you could pull out and use quickly. So we're using them a lot of times when we're talking about mindfulness with patients and talking about, um, you know, okay, so you learned the deep breathing. What do you do from here? What else can, you know, what else can relaxation look like? How can you be mindfully present in your life? These things or similarly with the self-compassion and the act. So the cards are brief. I just pulled out one basically at random from the mindful deck and it says, Put away your gadgets, sit without distractions for one minute. What is it like to sit in silence? What did you think about? Did you think about anything differently than you normally do? So it's really brief. My interns like to have the patient snap a photo of it with their phone so that we could still be a little technology. So we get to keep the card, but they also get to take it with them in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a way to, you know, give them that quick intervention. It flows into the, our time frame really well. You can stick them in your pocket because they're easy to carry. Um, here's another example. This one's about self-care. Think about some activities you do that are positive for you. Right? Each of these is something you, A, could do today, B, could do this week, C, could do this month do at least one of these today, this week and this month. So they're not things that are like terribly groundbreaking necessarily, but there's a lot of them. So it's a lot of ideas. They're really quick to pull out. And so when you're in a rut or when your patient's in a rut, um, they're really easy to use. So we'll drop a link to a few different kinds in the show notes. Um, but all I searched for on, of course, Amazon, because everything's on Amazon, yeah. is mindfulness card deck. 
Um, and I'm sure they carry them at other, you know, retailers or whatever, wherever you get your books and supplies. But if you search for mindfulness card deck, you'll find all different ones that come up and it's just a, a neat resource. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And note to Jeff Bezos, we're open to your sponsorship as well. Absolutely. Call us. That's up. right. I was, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we just gave Amazon free airtime. Yeah. yeah like, they, like they need it. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Uh, that said, if you if you shop through Amazon, at least do it through smile.amazon.com and have right. CFHA listed as your charity of choice. Um, <laughs> we don't get we don't get tons from that, but we get you know a few dollars here and there. We can, yeah. Well, we can use our. Do we have an affiliate link? We can put the affiliate link for CFHA in the um, show notes, maybe. Oh, that's right. We, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's a right. yeah that that's a push that we can make. There you yeah. go. Great. All right. Thank you guys for the news and notes. And uh, now to our main topic of the day, which is uh, measuring uh, levels of integrated care. So, you know, with this, I'm going to start at the very core, core place and start actually with you, Amber, um, because I'm always interested in what the future workforce is thinking about. And I'm heartened because people like you have such a head start compared to people like me almost 20 years ago when I started. And so, so I was wondering with this particular topic, um, during your training, were you ever exposed to or talked uh, about levels of integrated care or how to assess whether your program was integrated or not integrated or to what degree it was integrated? Was that ever part of the conversation you had in your graduate training, which was fairly recent? You just graduated, you know. Yeah, so we we did actually talk about that a lot, um, believe it or not. I just pulled up some of my notes from grad school, um, and I have all these fun little charts, you know, about the three levels and then the two sub-levels of um, coordinated care. So obviously, like we were taught, you know, coordinated care, co-located care, integrated care, and then the two levels within those. and we were always kind of having discussions about what do you think would be the most effective way to deliver integrated care? Do you think that it matters if you know, you're know you in the same building? Do you think that it matters what type of relationship you have with the physicians? Um, do you think it's more effective if you know, you're know you able to have more time with the patient or you know if it's a brief encounter? Um, and it was really interesting to see all the different responses that would, you know, come up or just even reflecting on that for myself. And I kind of had this idea that there was like, you know, this gold standard of integration where everyone's in the same building, everyone has this like mutual respect for each other, the warm handoffs are like flowing, um, everything's going really well. But, you know, there are also trade-offs to working in that type of a setting where the encounters might be more brief. If someone needs more support, you know, are you able to provide that in that setting? What would that look like? Um, So these are just kind of the questions that we would explore when we were talking about the different levels of integrated care. I don't think there really is a gold standard. Like I said, in prep, I think that's a trick question. Um, But, you know, I think it's definitely a conversation that's being had. And I, you know, have my handy dandy notes right here. And I definitely know that we talked about it at nauseum in my program. So... (laughs) Yeah, so so you just made my day because if students today are talking about that, so that is so far ahead of where yeah. where I started, it's ridiculous. And uh, if you're a student out there and you're not having that conversation, maybe you know 
chat up Amber and say, hey, can, what kind of curriculum that you guys have? Yeah, I can send you my charts. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So, so, so that's that's great. So now Deepu and uh, Grace, um, you guys are in practice. You've been in practice for years. Uh, you're developing your programs. Um, have you guys ever in the life of your programs stopped to um, uh, try to assess what your level of integration is and sort of as a team be self-reflective about this is where we are and this is where we want to be? Um, or no, we've reached our goal. This is where where we want to be. <laughs> we have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> well, um Yes. Uh, so we uh, we've act we've actually experimented with a couple of instruments, and I think one of the things that we're sort of thinking through is um, as we write our policies and procedures, what is it that one what is that one instrument that we want to go back to? Um, because we're now in a phase sort of like growing from one program to couple of others. So how do we standardize it, and how do we sort of set certain protocols around? who is ultimately answering these questions um, from a, you know, a BHC, a behavioral science faculty kind of perspective, you're always biased, but you always want to get a sense of what is the medical assistant uh, and uh, her or his view and what is the resident's view and what is the preceptor's view uh, and, and make sure that we're not getting like the most gung-ho people to answer uh, all of the questions. Um, Part of the study that we did uh, to look at measure our levels of integration, and this was much before uh, I was getting really savvy, so our external evaluators had uh, chosen the AIMS Center, Patient-Centered Integrative Behavioral Healthcare Principles Checklist. Now, part of that is the, you know, there it's a lot more geared towards uh, tracking collaborative care. Um, and what I've found useful is either the a practice integration profile or the IPAT, uh, which is the integrated practice assessment tool. Um, and that's sort of what we're trying to decide around uh, between the PIP and the IPAT, what would be a good measure for us internally. Um, so that's sort of my experience to sort of... Yeah. Uh, so you, so you, guys, you guys sound like you're still in process as far as uh, selecting a tool but you've certainly had a conversation, it sounds like, around this and, and actually had at least one evaluation of this yeah. kind. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah. And just for the folks out there who are, you know, maybe a little bit newer to all this. So uh, the collaborative care model that comes out of the AIMS Center out of the University of Washington um, is a particular kind of integration model that uh, focuses on uh, specific populations and management of those populations using a care manager and psychiatrist as supports for the care team. Um, and I can see how in your setting, Deepu, given that most of what you do is PCBH driven, which is primary care behavioral health model, a different model that puts a behavioral health consultant in support of the primary care team for uh, across the population, uh, not just one specific disease condition, how that would that would necessitate a different kind of evaluation. Um, and the tools that you mentioned uh, are a little bit more broader uh, mm -hmm. than the AIM Center tool for sure. But before we do a little bit of more deep dive into those tools, Grace, um, what about your place? Have How reflective, how intentional have you guys been with regard to this idea of like, have we reached our goal? 
We, I will say that we have used more formative assessment. So looking at kind of where we're at as opposed to more structured um, evaluative assessment. Um, so I think I've mentioned on here, I've applied for a big grant. I'm wanting to move to some more formalized evaluation and, um, you know, change in that way. But so anyway, having said that, what we've done is more formative. So we've looked at tools like um, the main assessment tool that I think, you know, you're very familiar with Natalia. I know that you'll talk about more um, and just looked at even, you know, what's available about the levels of integration, talking through these concepts and looking at what we do, um, a lot of it in an instructional way. So with my interns as they're thinking through. Um, the other thing is Integris, so the health system that my residency is a part of, is working on expanding out integrated care through lots of different primary care clinics. So right now there's like seven um, different BHCs that are working and they're expanding and expanding that. And so I've been attending their meetings and providing them a little support because they don't have a, a manager yet that's directly over that. And the challenge that they brought up a lot was, oh, we can't do 15 minute appointments or, oh, we can't. And in their mind, that was the standard for whether they were integrated or not. And so we've talked about, you know, there's lots of different ways to be integrated. Let's look at your treatment plans. Let's look at your communication. Let's looking at, look at the patient experience. And so I just try to have tried to bring about maybe less formal, but more through discussions, kind of a a multifaceted view of how we can assess our integration because that's the other thing it's not i think sometimes when we think of like you know levels of integration some of the more simplistic ways of looking at it we're like well is this a level two or a level four well they may have some things from level two and some things from level four so then where do we classify that person it's not that easy um it's it's a much more complicated view mm -hmm. and so i challenge them instead of looking at things that well we can't change that you know, we're never going to get to that level of integration. Okay, well, that's not necessarily the only piece that makes you a level of integration. Let's look at the things that you can change. Let's look at the incremental things that you could take that would help you to be and to be practicing in a more integrated way. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah, you could you could be doing a bunch of 15-minute visits and be a horribly integrated site. <laughs> it's a, like those things are, are, you know, that's not the, a good way of seeing it. So Let's level set the people out there a little bit because um, we throw out terms like uh, the the six levels, for example. And Amber, that's what uh, you brought up with regard to the levels there. And that's really a HRSA uh, evaluative descriptive tool that has been used for a while. It used to be five. They changed it up to six. And the levels are basically a level one would be minimal collaboration. So it's basically the status quo where you have, you know, mental health clinic down the street and a, and a uh, primary care clinic somewhere else and and they send patients to each other right and that's that's about it uh, level two is basic collaboration at a distance so it could be something like uh, uh, the two places have talked and maybe they um, uh, have some sort of referral agreement uh, between the two to facilitate referrals between the two places um, that might be some basic collaboration at a distance. Uh, a level three is basic collaboration on site. So that's where you may have like a, a specialty mental health clinic um, on the third floor and a primary care clinic on the second floor. And they may have, again, some referral arrangements um, that allow patients to flow 
uh, back and forth somewhat uh, easily, but they don't share records, they don't share treatment plans, they don't do anything really in coordination of the care itself. And then once you get to level four and above, it's when you start getting to where you're running actual models of integrated care of some sort or another. You know, level four is close collaboration on site with some system integration. So maybe instead of the clinic being upstairs, it's maybe uh, you have a clinician that's in, in the setting, um, but maybe still most of their time might be with uh, specialty mental health care visits and some of their time with uh, more integrated care visits with the uh, medical team. Um, and then once you get up to these higher levels of five and six, that's where you're looking at a full collaboration or a transformed practice. That's really where the entire team is involved. So you have medical systems screening for behavioral health conditions, and you have um, medical providers routinely involving the behavioral health uh, team into uh, visits. Um, and you have potentially some populations that you're tracking with a registry, um, or you have common goals and you have uh, shared treatment plans where you're sharing the, the care uh, of the patient with the medical provider and the patient. Um, so that's what we mean when we say six levels. And all of these tools that we've mentioned so far, the PIP, IPATS, um, the main tool, which is called the MEHAF, um, are, are tools that basically try to place a practice along that continuum of six levels. But as Grace mentioned very astutely, the tricky thing is you can be in different parts of your practice at different levels of integrated care, right? So, um, so for example, guys, if you put your, your own organizational critical hats on and you look at your organization, right? Because both of you have pretty integrated practices. I'm, I'm just guessing. I don't know your practice, but I'm guessing you guys are four or above. In, in general and as far as your practices, but I'm sure that there are areas where you feel like, you know, our, our level of integration in this particular area isn't all that great. So give me an instance, an example in your practices where, you know, we, we just don't do this terribly well as a team or as an organization. Well, I'll give you one that I don't, I st I'm going to continue to make making the same choice, even though it moves us away from maybe what would be the highest level of integration in some people's eyes. Um, and I'll tell you why, because of the needs of our, my population of people that I'm training. Um, so we offer a bit of a dual model. We have co-located services and the integrated, really kind of PCBH style integration. Um, and we've done that from the time that I started taking interns and I intend to continue doing that. And one of the primary reasons why is that my trainees are almost all marriage and family therapy trainees. And in the state of Oklahoma and in a lot of places nationally, it's very hard for them to get jobs doing integrated care because of the whole Medicare issue and Blue Cross issue. Um, and so I know that most of my interns are going to be going to practice in traditional settings. And so I feel a responsibility to train them in doing traditional therapy in addition to the integrated care um, that they do. Um, to, For one thing, I feel a responsibility to train them in treating trauma through traditional therapy. And there's 
you know, some controversy and some different issues about what trauma work is appropriate for us to do in brief encounters or in the context of integrated care. And that should be a whole other, we haven't done a trauma episode yet, have we? Uh, I don't know how we've, how we haven't, but yeah. Okay. That needs to be a thing. Um, Anyway, so I have a dual model. There are people who would look at that and say, well, you guys aren't really integrated. If you're doing traditional therapy and you're taking people out of the exam room and you're moving away from, it's a different hallway from where our clinician rooms are. Um, But it's important to me for the training needs of my students and the eventual population that they will serve. And um, we do both. Now, the flip side of that is that does sometimes limit our warm handoffs too. So I've done things to try to mitigate that. Like we have a card on the outside of their therapy room door that says therapy in progress, please interrupt. And a lot of times people see that and it's a real head scratcher because they're like, what do you mean to interrupt therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the yeah. other side is a red side that says don't interrupt, but they know that that's the exception to put out the red side versus the rule. So like I was talking about trauma work or high conflict couple or something like that. Um, however, the doctors still don't want to stop and interrupt um so so sometimes that limits our warm handoffs i'm trying to counteract that through increasing our availability of bhcs um but it's a limitation so that would be an example i would give of a way that i've made an intentional choice that looks like less integration yeah that's great that's a great example yeah i think on our end um we have uh, we have a strange set of affiliations between the university and private hospitals where our um residency practices are currently focused on or located in and so it's almost as if all the professional services which is like the physician services the bhc services all belong to the university and everything else in the building where we practice belongs to the hospital so there's a lot of operational stuff that just doesn't happen the way we would sort of really envision it to happen right like for example you know, at level five, we are in the same space. We actively seek uh, system solutions clinically, but not operationally or financially. And therefore, there's a big schism there. Uh, we communicate very frequently in person. In fact, uh, yesterday, uh, I think I was in clinic. I saw about 10 patients, and I didn't get to connect with the, the physician that gave me a couple of warm handoffs in the afternoon. So my morning consisted of connecting back with them and just updating him, right? And um, I think we don't have regular team meetings with the medical assistants and the clinic manager to really uh, facilitate a intentional reflective culture around integration, which I would love to see, or constant case discussions as just a routine practice component. So we're not there yet, you know? I think we're getting to a place there's an in-depth understanding of our roles. And that goes on the BHC side, too, because it was only a few years ago, even for me, to just getting to this understanding. And we've talked about this in one of our previous uh, podcasts where we integrate to the functions of primary care. And that's where I feel like we make that leap of an in-depth understanding of our roles and culture versus sort of integrating as a BHC and a PCP. Um, and I feel like uh, from a conceptual model, I'm there. Uh, I, I, you can see it trickle in few practices uh, that I do. But as a system, I don't know if we are truly there, um, where we're you know, really thinking through as a team that every time a patient comes in, that we can 
get the BHC involved or vice versa. Like there are certain health maintenance things that I can check off on this patient and encourage a same-day appointment to take care of that. Um, I can count on my hands the number of times I've done that. Like I've gotten uh, it's like a diabetic foot exam completed for a patient that was in clinic uh, with the resident that was on rotation with me. I gotten a pap smear schedule because that was not completed within the, a lot of time based on the Cerner health maintenance charts. Um, but I don't do that. I would like to do that more often. Uh, so that it's seen as a singular team. So I think uh, Grace's observation is pretty on point uh, when we think about things like that. And something you just made me think of, Deepu, too, is that when we think about integration, we have to think about from CJ Peaks through Worldview, too. It's not yeah. just the clinical work that we do. There's right. observation parts of integration. There's financial parts of integration. And so I, that would be my charge to listeners as your like I said, as I've challenged the other BHCs in our in our area, but also just for everyone, think about the diversity of ways that integration can happen. And I think the operational and financial points are important, especially for when uh, to grace to your point of like LMFTs and LPCs that may be in integrated care settings that do not have full access to like bill for Medicare uh, services, is to really think about what are like your system's idea of the key metrics that they're running after because you can fashion the BHC's time and role and involvement in care based on actually big quality metrics that you're running after. So they're mm -hmm. obviously not codable, billable encounters for the BHC, but at the end of the day, if your uh, measure of quality is hypertension control and the that the part of your clinical decision as a system is that everybody who is not under hypertension control um, meets with the BHC and the BHC really focuses on health behaviors, goal setting, basic motivational interviewing, small behavioral changes over the course of six to eight months. And, you know, 80% of your population at the end of it is meeting um, the metric. That, that means integration is helping in that sense, right? So, from a financial point of view, the rewards that come from meeting those metrics is a investment into the BHC position and in, in salaries. And I think David uh, uh, Bowman and Bridget Beachy, they had sent out an email recently on the listserv that talked about uh, a lot of their quality metrics for diabetes and others were met. Uh, and based on the review, a lot of those people who did meet their criteria also met with the BHC, um, and which is a great example of non-billable encounters perhaps, but actually adds to the larger value. And I think the ability to think through the prism of a assessment tool really helps you be intentional about that. Yeah, and, and in fact, an organization that can embody that perspective uh, strategically is probably at a higher level of, of actual integration right? Because it's really about the entire organization thinking through as, um, as one along the integrated care perspective. It's not just, as we say, plopping down a clinician into a medical setting and thinking that that is integration. It's really culture change across the organization. And in these sort of highly developed organizations that are up this scale, you will see them make these sorts of decisions and say, hey, we think this LMFT is worth it. And it's not because they can bill. It's because of what they bring to the table with regard to our 
our whole person care. And there is financial ramifications to that in the form of incentive-based contracts, for example, or quality-based contracts. So those are different ways to think about it. That said, I do, just as an aside, envision a future where LMFTs don't have to worry about this anymore. I think it'll happen. <laughs> I really do. Amen. Um, Amen. Yes. Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> that you, but you, you kind of got us back to the original question, though, is how do you assess it? How do you look at it? And I think maybe it's time for us to get really practical and give some suggestions for our listeners. Like, okay, if you, you're doing this integration thing, you want to do a self-check, you want to see how you're doing how would you direct people to start making that, you know, kind of systematic review of how they're doing an evaluation? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've done this with clinics uh, many times. And so I, I'm a proponent of do what works. I'm a very pragmatic individual, <laughs> right? And so uh, if you're doing just a formative evaluation, that's great. Take some time out. Meet as a team regularly. Talk about what what's going on in the clinic. If that's all you can do, do that. Um, and that just really means about having conversations across the different members of your teams and across up and down your organizational hierarchy, right? Um, now, there are tools that specifically help you structure those conversations. So um, we've mentioned some of them already. There's the practice integration profile that's put out by Roger Kessler and colleagues. Uh, we'll put, of course, the links to this in the show notes. And if you go there, it'll ask you a bunch of questions. Um, and the way that you're supposed to answer these questions is to essentially um, gather information about your performance. So for example, uh, one, of our, one of the questions related to practice workflow is, we use a standard protocol to identify, assess, treat, and follow up patients who need or can benefit from integrated behavioral health. And then you have five choices based on the percent of time that you do it. So for example, one of the choices is frequently for most aspects of care, 67 to 99% of the time we do that. And it even gives you a descriptor with a numerator and denominator. So that's a really specific tool that you can go through as a team. Uh, maybe you bring together your uh, BHC representative, a representative from the medical assistants, uh, physician group, uh, nurses, uh, an administrator. And then you sit down together and you fill this out and then it gives you a profile essentially of where you are. So that's one tool. The tool that I've used the most actually, and I'll tell you why I use it the most, has been uh, the MeHalf. And uh, I think the reason I use it is because it's, it's pretty easy to use. And because I think the main thing you're gonna get out of this is not a number, but rather the process of self-reflection as a team. And that's important because fundamentally, I think, at least, and this is just me talking, this is not sort of some evidence base, but my sense is that this really mirrors, in a sense, personal development, right? What do we tell people? We say, be the best version of you, right? We hopefully don't tell them, be this person, right? Now we say, be the best version of you. As a result, when we, when we talk to clinics, we ought to be saying the same thing, be the best version of you. And each clinic, each organization is a unique entity. And as you said before, Grace, it's important for each clinic and entity to sort of reach its defined, um, best actualized way of working together as a team and to meet the specific needs of both their staff and their patients, right? And so if that's the case, then really you need a process that is flexible and that allows that team to A, define what their goal is. So what is it we want to be? What's our goal? And then 
uh, than B to say, where are we towards that particular goal? So the me half has these 20 items, 21 items, I believe. I actually added a couple of them when I was using the tool. Um, and it's split up into two categories, basically uh, clinical and organizational. So it, it looks at your clinical aspects of your work, uh, how are you doing screening, how are you doing treatment planning, um, how accessible uh, like behavioral health staff is, for example, and then organizational characteristics like how much buy-in do you have from your physicians? How much buy-in do you have from administrators? Um, what's, what's, uh, what's your billing like? You know, do you have integrated billing or is it uh, totally sort of separate? Are your records integrated? Um, uh, are your notes uh, integrated, et cetera? So what it does, again, is facilitate a conversation. And this is literally what I would do in these situations. I get the team together. We have an hour and a half, um, which is a lot of time in primary care, but you, you don't do this very often. And you just have each of these representatives that I talked about before across the organization. And then we'd go question by question and we'd say, all right, as a group, what do you think your number is? And each of the numbers is one to 10. They have descriptions associated with them. And then people would negotiate and say, well, but no, I don't think we're an eight because we don't do this. And I was like, oh, I didn't know we didn't do that. I thought we were doing it. And all these conversations would emerge as a result of just going through the tool that led to actual action items that people could work on and say, you know, we need to work on our screening or we need to work on, on our accessibility or our records are not integrated. We're not doing shared treatment planning. Um, and so I think it's that process that I would focus on. I would tell people, I don't care about your score. <laughs> you know, I care that you have a good conversation about it because you need to be the best version of you. And you don't know that until you actually sit down and ask yourself, first of all, what version of me do I want? And am I there? Really the worst case scenario, it's not a site that has co-located care or something like that. It's a site that is doing something mindlessly. In other words, they're doing it because that's just what they do, but they haven't really thought it through. And so these tools hopefully just help you to think through mindfully, this is what we want and this is where we are and these are the gaps between where we are and what we think we want. So that's the way I certainly approached it. Um, it's not the way everybody approaches it and people have stronger opinions about sort of certain standards than others. Um, but the more practices you see, the more you realize, hey, there's a world full of people doing really good work in very, very different ways. Um, so that's my two cents. We could go, we could actually talk a lot. I could talk a lot more about it. I love this kind of talk because this is right up my alley, but we are at the uh, tail end of our podcast. And so Deepu, could you please take us into our interview of the day? Um, uh, really great conversation with Jody Pala, who's been on our podcast before, attends all sorts of these fun conferences and, and you talked to her about one of those. Yes, uh, the, the interview focuses on uh, Dr. Palaha's experience with uh, Dissemination and Implementation Science, or DNI Science for short. And she attended a conference, and we really talk about the sessions that she benefited most from. What you know, what kind of an attendee was she? Was she a novice, sort of mid, you know, mid-level experienced, or an expert? She really reflects on that. And then we also talk about how did she get into this, and what is the importance of this for folks working in integrated care settings, uh, because thinking about uh, delivery uh, point uh, assessments and research questions that we can ask 
uh, is very important to our growing field. So she sheds light on that. All right, here's our interview with Dr. Palaha. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in. I am on Zoom, kind of in person, with Dr. Jody Palaha from East Tennessee State University. And we're going to talk to her a little bit about her experience at a recent conference that I think all of you should know about in the, as you become better at listening to our podcast. It's a dissemination and implementation science conference. Uh, but I'll step back and I'll let Jody say hello and introduce yourself really quickly. Sure. Well, I'm Jody Palaha. I'm a, a psychologist by training. I spent a lot of my time doing research, and I hope I didn't just turn off your whole audience, Deepu, by using the R word. The big um, R word. Yeah, it's a terrible word. It's true, though. Um, I have a long history of work in integrated care, and I'm very interested in trying to find ways to measure its impact. Um, and that's how I stumbled into DNI science. It's how I stumbled into uh, CFHA. Uh, I've been an active member of the organization for many years. Uh, most recently uh, became the editor of Families Systems of Health. And so in that role, I serve as an ex officio uh, member of the CFHA board. Perfect. Now you said DNI science, which stands for Dissemination and Implementation Science. Two questions to start us off. How long ago did you get into DNI science and how did you stumble upon this conference that you attended this past year? Sure. Well, you know, my very first study in primary care was to find out if we could get pediatricians to use an evidence-based method for assessing for ADHD. And after we implemented this method, we, would, we did a one-year and three-year follow-ups just using medical records to see, like, did they even do what we told them to do? And looking at permanent products, like um, you know, having actual rating scales in there or school reports, those kinds of things. And, the data were very compelling that we were able to implement an evidence-based assessment strategy in primary care and get it to continue for three years. And um, so much so that we were able to publish the paper in the journal Pediatrics, which is really a well-read journal yeah. on pediatricians. And that is DNI science. I mean, this was a paper we published um, over 10 years ago. It really was, to me, it was uh, like, really the, the place where my soul wanted to be in terms of research, right? This really pragmatic, informative, to clinic practice kind of work. And it wasn't until uh, probably about five or six years ago that I discovered dissemination and implementation science as a field. And really, it had just started to emerge. It was the third year for their conference, and I attended the conference, and I was like, oh, these are my people, um, because everyone there was doing research like the one I, I just described. And the conference that you attended this past year was one of the ones that you started attending once you found out about the field? Exactly. So I attended that conference in like 2013 or something like that for the first time, maybe 2012. And, um, you know, it was like, again, kind of like finding my mothership and uh, yeah. realizing there were other people that wanted to do this really pragmatic endpoint research. And can I say endpoint? I mean, like right. in, the, in the healthcare setting um, that, that had results that meant something to impact of programming. Um, and I, I was excited. It was really exciting. It was like, here's people who want to do this type of research. They want to create models that help explain it 
They want to create methods to help do it. They want to create journals to help disseminate it. They also realize that journals maybe aren't the best way to disseminate it. They're right. thinking about creative ways to disseminate it. Uh, that's where I wanted to be. Perfect. So you found your nerd herd at this uh, conference. Oh, man, it is super nerdy, too, Deepu. Man, it's, if you like nerds, this is the conference for you. I like nerds. So considering all the other nerds who are listening to us, so like <laughs> clinicians, researchers, administrators, what are the reasons integrated care people should pay attention to DNI science? What would, what would it open up for them? Well, clinicians who are doing integrated care are sort of already a unique group um, in that, you know, this is a new-ish um, care model. Right. So um, folks who select into this area are already people who tend to think outside the box. If you're a person in integrated care who is going above and beyond in integrated care, who's trying new models and new methods, who's working out new programming, who's trying to come overcome some of the hurdles of integrated care, um, then you're an innovator in the real world who has an opportunity to um, uh, spread new information about what you're finding. Uh, if, you can, if you can collect those data in a way that are interesting and generalizable, um, people want to know what you're, what you're learning. Right. And the whole field of DNI is really about trying to connect with you all better. Um, and so uh, DNI science is, uh, is really all about the evolving models and methods that fit into real world settings and allow us to do research that, that is, is consistent with kind of what you're interested in. Does that make sense? It does. I think the thing that turned me on to exploring more in this area, you were part of that reason that I took that turn is recognizing that we have good evidence supported treatments, mm -hmm. but when it actually reaches the end user, and actually has to meet the primary care context and it mm -hmm. goes through multiple hands and there's limited time, then that's where we sort of test the implementation pathway to see it's actually working the way we meant it to work. And if yes. not, what's going on and adjusting that. So yeah, in this conference, what session impacted you the most? You know, um, there were several sessions that touched upon, I think, one of the most interesting ideas uh, that I had heard in a long time. And I hope it doesn't sound just so simple uh, trying to, you know, recapture it now. Uh -huh. When you think about translating science that's conducted in, in non-real world settings um, to real world settings, um, you know, you've got these randomized controlled trials and, and laboratory-based trials that are you know, um, pretty contrived and mm -hmm. have all of the variables of payment models and policy and real world clinicians who have all these different skill sets and interests and uh, time, space, etc. you know, uh, that you have in the real world. And when you think about taking that body of knowledge that's been done in these contrived and not very like kind of generalizable settings and moving it into these settings, you really think about like, how do you get it there? How do right. you really get uptake? And how do you make sure that the best practices and information and science and new findings and all the stuff we know from doing research is well disseminated in a way that allows it to be taken up and studied further under real world 
environments. And um, it turns out that, um, you know, there's all these models and methods, and sure, that's part of what DNI is evolving. But the number one factor that influences the uptake of research is relationships. Wow. Um, and that's something I, I again, that can sound uh, maybe corny even, I don't know, in just trying to recapture it after the conference was over. But the idea that I heard across multiple presentations is that research is part of the social process. And we really have to understand the problems that people in the real world are trying to solve, their complex right. parameters. There has to be a sense of trust there and allowing a relationship to uh, evolve. That using research evidence is a social process. Mm -hmm. um, and it involves sense making by stakeholders. And um, we really have to be uh, able to listen to one another to do this work, which was described as humble and practical work. That's amazing. And it, it, I'm sure our listeners in integrated care can really identify with relationship-centered practices because ultimately integrated care and delivery of it is dependent on the quality of your relationships with everyone in the team. Absolutely. But what's revolutionary about it is that when you think about how research gets disseminated, you think of mm -hmm. it as something you're supposed to read somewhere or maybe right. hear it in this like one directional lecture that you hear. Research is never sold as a dynamic relational process. And the other thing that I heard a lot of was how research has to be baked into real world service delivery processes, not just like coming in and leaving again. Uh, right. It's really, uh, re and research has not been baked into real world processes even though it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. So when I heard, you know, other, you know, smarter people than me starting to articulate the value of baking research into real world processes, uh, because it's a social process, because it relies on relationships. I just thought that was exciting. No, I think that is an exciting idea to think about research, which, you know, hopefully people who are turned off in the beginning are sort of turning back on into this conversation mm -hmm. and realizing that it's not a separate, independent, uh, ultra-controlled world, but it does involve relating and connecting. Mm -hmm. uh, as, you, as you went through the conference, what did you realize were, were part of your strengths already? And what did you sort of come away and say, man, I really got to dig up on this to improve my mastery in DNI? Great questions. Um, well, I feel like I've always been interested in and competent in the area of measuring implementation outcomes. So looking at reach, looking at adoption, um, looking at fidelity, looking at cost effectiveness, sustainability, those are all implementation outcomes. And I've really focused a lot on how those variables can be measured um, in the context of you know, integrated care programming. I'm not sure that I identified an area of weakness for me personally, but I definitely noticed um, an area of weakness in the field. And mm -hmm. so the, the conference, um, if I could use this bridge metaphor that I use all the time. Um, but it's, it, it's in your journal uh, editor? It's in the journal. Yeah, it never hurts to plug your own journal. That's right. Uh, our inaugural editorial, which appeared in December 2018, 
uh, in the Journal of Family Systems and Health uses a bridge metaphor. And the bridge is really supposed to be showing you how uh, research advances from basic science to applied um, to, you know, kind of um, uh, these uh, effectiveness trials right. to eventually reach the other side of the bridge, which is really reaching the shore. And the shore is where we have real world healthcare settings and all these things. And DNI science is focused on getting it to the shore. And that part of the bridge is very poorly articulated and not fully built. We don't have as many methods. We don't have as many models. We don't have as many journals or funding mechanisms to make mm -hmm. research happen on that end of the bridge. So getting to my point, the field of DNI and the conference is really about constructing the bridge. It's very much about what new models do we need? What new methods do we need? Uh, what methods work better than others? What's the evidence base for these uh, rating scales of uh, adoption or acceptability versus those? How do we measure feasibility? Um, it's uh, very much about kind of constructing methods and I think of it as bridge building. Mm -hmm. What's missing um, from the conference and from the world are studies of implementation, studies that use those models and methods to actually show uptake impact in real world settings. And that's where, you know, our folks in integrated care are well positioned to contribute. And it made me feel like that conference, and it came up in some of the sessions, we need more um, studies of implementation practice hmm. rather than implementation science. Uh, and I'm excited about that. That's a real area of need in the field. And we, we really have the potential to uh, contribute to that. Right. And I think uh, listeners, if you haven't seen the December issue of Family Systems and Health, we highly suggest you read, on, read up on it just to be in the know of what we just talked about. Uh, but I think part of your intention and, and Nadia's in, intention as the co-editor is to facilitate that kind of work for integrated care. Absolutely, Dr. Sunderji, who's my um, esteemed co-editor, is absolutely working with me on you know, many ways to help both build parts of the bridge, methods and models that work well for integrated care, and help develop a science of implementation practice. So how do we actually use some of the existing models and methods that are out there uh, I know, Deepu, you and I were talking about the re-aim model, for example. Right. Earlier, lots of folks are familiar with that model. It's starting to get better disseminated within the integrated care community as sort of a structure for looking at implementation outcomes. It's a fantastic sort of framework for thinking about how to structure a study in, implemented ca in integrated care, or even if not a study, um, a quality improvement project. Yep. It has all of those dimensions. Yeah, it's really, actually, it's really what allows you to do a rigorous quality improvement project that, that since it's attached to that framework, gives you the potential for, you know, possibly publishing it. Yeah, um, when I started reading upon it, I was, I was sort of sad that I didn't know this at the beginning of when we were trying to do behavioral health integration uh, yeah. four years ago. You know, yeah. So. Could have a got some of that data, yeah. yeah. A little uptake on, a little slow on that uptake. Uh, so, as parting words of wisdom, what advice do you have for our listeners regarding DNI? Yeah, um, you know, uh, there are lots of ways to learn about DNI. If you are just hearing about it for the first time and your interest is piqued, 
um, I would definitely encourage you to read the um, editorial we've mentioned, but also um, Dr. Jen Funderburk and I published a, a different but similar paper that um, talks a bit about this topic in a special issue of Family Systems and Health um, in June of 2017. Had to think about that. Um, there have also been um, some chapters that have been published um, by myself, uh, so you can kind of look me up and look up some of our chapters. We have a chapter in a, a book by Trent Codd on practice-based research, uh, and the chapter is by myself and Dr. Ivy Click, and that specifically talks about um, implementation research and how it fits for um, clinicians working in primary care. Um, so those are some kind of primers on the subject. And if you get a bit more interested, I would definitely recommend considering this conference. Uh, it's, a, it's in December. It's um, always in Washington, D.C., and it's put on by um, the NIH and um, AHRQ, I think, okay. which is uh, the DNI conference. And there's also one other one, which is in Seattle, and it's the Society for Implementation Research, and that's held every other September but September of 2019 is one of those. So it'll be coming. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your Oh, time. you're welcome, Deepu. It was fun. All right. Talk about this stuff all day, as you know. Yes, I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. All right, and we're back. Thank you to Dr. Palaha for uh, sharing her time with us once again. Um, uh, we love having you on, Jody. so you are welcome anytime. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. We are at the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, it is our practice to send you out uh, in a mindful, centered way. So, uh, Deepu, take us out. All right. This is in uh, line with the topic that we've been discussing today. It's really all of us who are in integrated care at different levels and different settings daring greatly to do the work that we do. And often as we go through that, we may get criticisms, we may get the haters, the haterade thrown on us. Uh, <laughs> but I think going back to Brene Brown's uh, book, Daring, Daring Greatly, she really takes some things from Theodore Roosevelt as her opening uh, statement to make the case for that. And I thought I'll leave you guys with that quote. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. 
who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Awesome. Well, let's dare greatly, everybody. For the uh, Integrated Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Neftali Serrano. Thanks for listening. We'll check in with you next month. Bye.